this, narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. For those of you who are curious, we will be starting this review free of spoilers. Our casual correspondence section will follow, and then we will end this episode with a spoiler-filled discussion. Today's movie is a doozy, folks. And whoa, 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 whoa. Where's James? What? What do you mean, James? I'm right here, Daniel. Okay, James. Yeah, imposter James. You sound different. Who do you sound like? What? I don't sound like anyone. What are you talking about? What am I talking about? We'll, we'll discuss this later. We're on air at the moment. Let's talk about the movie then. Anomalisa is written and directed by a dynamic duo of people, Duke Johnson and Charlie Kaufman. Duke Johnson uh, directed, yeah, okay, or at least... Yeah, I'll take care of it. Yeah. Who is that? Hey, Daniel, what... Hey! Um, Have you been recording for both of us? I'm so disoriented and confused, and a little uncomfortable. Well... Then you're in a perfect mood to watch Anomalisa, a 2015 surrealist film by Duke Johnson and Charlie Kaufman. Now, James, these guys got some serious credits behind them. Charlie Kaufman also wrote this movie, and he was also involved in another surrealist film I've heard about but haven't seen called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ooh, yeah. And then Duke Johnson, he's involved in Community. Oh. So, yeah, boy. I'm a fan. But Anomalisa, such a strange movie. Now, for those who haven't seen it or heard of it, James, what is it about? It's hard to explain. To put it simply, it's about a man that is uh, overwhelmed with the monotony of his life. Uh, so much so that every person in the movie has the same face and the same voice, except for the main character. There's three, a total of three voice actors in this movie, and one of them plays Almost every single, like 95% of the human beings in this film. Yeah. Tom Noonan. He's credited literally on IMDb as everybody else. Let me tell you, folks, it's unnerving and it's hard to really gauge what exactly is going on until you get later into the movie. Uh, but I will tell you this much. This movie does an excellent job of putting you in the shoes of the main character. It's a stop motion film, uh, which is... Not something you would typically expect for a rated R adult movie, but it works in the sense that it makes you really uncomfortable and it dances through the uncanny valley the entire movie. It's wild. It's hard to explain. It's rated R for a reason, folks. Definitely use discretion before watching this movie, but we'll we'll talk more about the animation and the surrealist aspects of the story later. I will say this, James, uh, as a non-spoiler perspective this is one of those movies that made me want to bang my head against a wall because the way that it executes these concepts it brings up in the movie 
the way it merges the surrealism with the realism and vice versa is such a simple method and such a simple way of conveying such powerful feelings that it made me want to bang my head and think, why the heck didn't I think of this? (laughs) (laughs) I do think, though, that's the hallmark of a great story is something so simple it makes other filmmakers go, why the heck didn't I think of this? Yeah. And it's so brilliant, too, because the medium is stop motion. And stop motion puppets are so expensive. But if you use the same mold over and over again for every single character except for one, then, I mean, it's it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier. You save a lot of money and you save a lot of time making everyone have the same face. So that it was very brilliant in the way that they cut corners from a practical standpoint as well, from a financial standpoint. But I agree, Daniel. The way that this story merges the visuals with the story in such a harmonious way is something that I can only describe as animation in its sincerest form. The visuals, the sounds, everything meshes together perfectly. It treads on the uncanny valley on purpose because the plot line of the movie is uncertain of itself. You don't know what actually is real, similar to the experience you feel whenever you look at something that's from the Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley Cliff Notes. The Uncanny Valley is whenever you see something that a part of your brain recognizes as human, but is not actually human. These stop-motion puppets are very realistic. If I posted a screenshot of Anomalisa and you took five steps back, you would say, that's just a photo of a person, but it's not. This is why animation is such a powerful storytelling method because you are free to do whatever you want and Anomalisa takes advantage of the medium and uses it to push the story forward. Some of the animated movies that come out now, you could have done them live action, but this movie could not have been made in any other any other medium without being a huge hassle and being kind of probably unappealing visually, I think, if if it was tackled in any other medium. So yeah, it's sort of it sort of brought me to a, a place of animation where I'm like Animation is really powerful, but also, like, this movie has put me in such a thoughtful and melancholy state. I don't know. Daniel, could you tell me a little bit about your emotional response to this movie? I think melancholy is such a precise way of putting it. The entire movie, you feel like you're a passive observer. You're watching these events unfold. There's a guy who makes decisions, sees things in a different way than we would normally see, But it isn't particularly extraordinary. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. It's incredibly bogged down. It's incredibly fatiguing watching this guy struggle with his life, especially in the first act of the movie. However, for all those negative words, I have to say, it is quite effective at conveying what it wants to say. This guy has a life. He wants to escape. But it works. Uh, I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is such a slow-moving life you have, you know? And then things start picking up when he perceives this possible escape route. And we're along for the ride. I don't want to go into too much more. This movie is really hard to talk about without... Talking spoilers. Exactly. I'm going to close with my rating. I give this a 4.5 out of 5 stars. This is very well done. Visuals are incredible. The camera work is amazing. Yeah. The voice acting or lack thereof <laughs> the, is effective. 
Everything is effective. If it's done well, it's brilliant. And even if it isn't done to the standard you'd expect, it is still as effective as anything else you'd find. Yeah. That being said, I would not watch this movie a second or a third time. This is not something I would just leisurely stroll over and say, I'm in the mood for Anomalisa. Let's see. I could watch Muppets Family Christmas. Um, <laughs> I could watch Space Jam or Anomalisa. Huh. Anomalisa. I want to be depressed. I want to be sad. I'm going to watch Anomalisa. <laughs> I want to grapple with the shadows of the human heart. That's basically it. Uh, what would you rate this, James? Uh, I would give it a four out of five, um, but it's not the movie's fault. It's my fault that I am rating it that that low. Off the bat, I said, oh, three out of five. This movie makes me sad, and I don't like being sad. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, this movie is brilliant. This movie is, it does exactly what it wants to do. It gives you a glimpse into the mind of a desperate man. And that didn't make me feel great. But the way it's executed, the way it allows you to empathize, for that I can't give it anything anything lower than a four out of five. Um, but yeah, folks, this is a one shot. You know, watch this movie once. I'm not going to watch it again. But if you are interested in seeing something that will move you in an interesting way, if you want to see experimental animation with an interesting story, it's not a popcorn flick. This is not an action movie. This is not exciting in hardly any way. If you are going to see it, I would recommend sitting down and watching it uh, fully through the whole thing. Some people I've known kind of half watch the movie and just kind of click away on their phones or kind of get up and let the movie play in the background. And I will say, if you do that, you'll find this movie to be boring, vapid, meaningless, and just white noise. If you're going to watch this movie, this movie is a lot like a marriage. It works best when you're committed to it, when you're focused, and when you're able to hone in on the little nuances. <laughs> and for those of you that have seen the movie and are listening through this, can probably taste some of the irony in what I've said, <laughs> but I think that ends it for our non-spoiler review. Yeah, uh, I sense we're going to have a lot to talk about with our spoiler review, but first, let's move on to casual correspondence. So, uh, you guys had a lot to say this week, guys. Um, thank you so much for all your feedback. The warm fuzzies are real. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Yeah, you guys said a lot of nice things uh, over the past week. It's mid-April right now, so you're you're a couple weeks behind in hearing this, but I appreciate everybody's feedback. Thank you so much for all the love um, about the show. It means a lot. Okay, so Milan, thank you so much for your feedback about Lord of the Rings. Um, you suggested that we should review it, and that sort of has sparked this great discussion. So we put out a question on Instagram asking what is there still worth talking about regarding Lord of the Rings because it's been so many years and a lot of people responded and said we should keep going and we should review it anyway so thank you Trevor, Connor, uh, Sky, Jacob, Milan oh and Nathan as well um, thank you all for responding and encouraging us to discuss the movie uh, we're going to be looking at all of your feedback in detail in the next episode which is going to be a Lord of the Rings episode so all you Lord of the Rings fans check it out and if you're listening to this now and you're like i never saw anomalisa 
And some of my friends might not listen to this episode. Tell them that Lord of the Rings is coming soon. We're doing the whole trilogy in one episode, as it should be. Um, Every time I or James have talked to anyone about Lord of the Rings, it's always mentioned as a singular unit. Even though it's a trilogy and it's technically three parts, it's spoken of as, what movie did you like? No one really says, oh, I like Fellowship of the Ring. That's my favorite. They always say, oh, I liked Lord of the Rings. Right. And so we're treating it the same way. So the next question we have uh, is from Jacob from Oregon. Thank you, Jacob, you stranger. Uh, He says, what do you think of digital premieres? And that is in light of Trolls 2, which just dropped this week uh, on digital release while we're recording this. And Artemis Fowl is coming to Disney+. Plus. Oh, yay. (laughs) Daniel, I know that you're a huge fan of Artemis Fowl. I'm sure you're very excited for this movie. I read the books. I, I want to say, don't judge the books too harshly based on the movie. Um, I saw the teaser for the movie. Wasn't a huge fan, but thought, well, I'm not seeing a lot. Then I saw the mainstream trailers, and I'm convinced it's going to be terrible. So naturally, we're going to try and review it. That's not a guarantee. Uh, it's something we've talked about. Uh, but now that it's more accessible, maybe we'll see it. Yeah. But anyway... To the question, I will confess my opinion is not as informed as perhaps I'd like it to be on this topic. I've yet to see Trolls 2 and I'm sorry, hardcore animation fans. I'm not really interested in seeing it unless it's with the intent to lampoon it or roast it to death. But Branch is my favorite movie character. Oh my gosh. Well, you can make like a branch and snap off the tree and fall to the ground. That was, wow. Let's see if anyone cares. Quick to the draw with that one. Okay, I'll back off. Uh, Way to stick to your opinion, James. Uh So I've heard a few things from people saying nothing's really going to replace the movie theater. And now that we've been in quarantine for enough time where we don't have a movie theater to go to, a lot of people, especially the same people, have stuck with that. The movie theater is a hearth of storytelling. That's where people go to watch movies. And frankly, nothing can quite replace sitting in the dark with strangers With the one thing connecting all of you is the story that is being shared on screen. The laughs, the tears, the occasional person that's annoying and loud and distracting and security has to go get them. (laughs) Like, it's all an experience. Uh, And a movie theater adds something, not just the movie, but the people. Now, from my perspective, I think some movies deserve to be in theaters more than others. Like Avengers, all of that is cinematic. It's a cinematic experience. It's large. It's big. You want to feel that. You know, Thanos is not going to loom as large on my phone screen as he did when I saw him for the first time in the theater. The theater added to that. You know, I was sitting with all these people. We were all kind of shocked. We were all wondering. This is like opening night for Infinity War. So, Oh, I remember. I was there. Hardly anyone. Yes. What a blast. We were all there, James and I and our friends from college, and it was impactful. So that's what I'll end on. I think movie theaters add impact to some movies. Now, has Hollywood kind of taken that for granted over the years? Absolutely. There are so many shallow action movies. I'm looking at you, Dwayne Johnson's movie Skyscraper Uh-oh. and every single Michael Bay movie ever invented. Hobson and Shaw is very underrated. It's a great, thoughtful movie. So yeah, that's where I'll leave it. When taken advantage of fully, theaters can be a powerful middleman between the general audience 
and the experts crafting a spectacle to behold. How about you, James? Uh, you said so many things that I was going to say, but then also I didn't have a ton to say. So thank you for all of those thoughts. I know you've got a lot of experience with movie theaters. Uh, you worked at one for a few years and uh, you liked movie theaters. So, you know, you go to them a lot. I will say digital premieres is something that should probably only be exclusive to the movie juggernauts uh, because it's only happening right now because of the COVID quarantine going on. And Disney has so many heckin' movies it's cranking out right now that it can afford to do some digital releases and say, actually, next year's calendar is completely packed, so we can't put Artemis Fowl into our next our next year's slate. There's no room. Uh, and same with Trolls 2, you know? Uh, DreamWorks and all of the companies that are behind it want to schedule everything so it's nice and tidy. Trolls 2 is a low priority. Whenever a movie is just going straight to digital, regardless of what movie it is, right now I just feel it's the same way as banishing a movie to uh, direct-to-DVD. Yeah. It kind of feels like you just pantsed everybody, like you pantsed the movie in a public square. Like, hey, we don't like this movie a whole lot. Here here you go. I'm predicting right now that those movies that are coming out on streaming are not going to do nearly as well as they would in the theater. Yeah, I don't know uh, how the numbers work exactly. Maybe I should. Uh, but I, I do agree. I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna hurt, especially DreamWorks. I'm hurting for all those artists who spent years animating a movie. Regardless of how I feel about the movie, uh, I can't deny the talent behind it. Uh, I just wish the talent was better recognized and their work was at least on display on a bigger stage. Yeah. All right. Uh, our last question for today is uh, from Troy from Indiana. Hi, Troy. Uh, Hello, Troy. He always has such interesting questions. Today he says... Love your questions, Troy. What fictional character would you most want to be quarantined with? Um, I would want to be quarantined with Ron Swanson uh, because he's a man that's unafraid of doing things that need to be done, and he's very private. And also he could teach me lots of cool things. There are some huge perks to this. Uh, I'm just thinking practically here. One, he would go out into zombie land and do all the shopping for me. Oh, or or he would just hunt whatever food we need. Two, he would give me space if I needed it. And even if I didn't need it, he would give me space, which I appreciate. Three, he would teach me how to chop wood and whittle and craft things out of dead animals and dead trees. He'd teach me how to fish, grill things, barbecue. And also he would have amazing one-liners about capitalism and about America, which would keep me inspired and excited. I, is it okay if I have two answers for this? Yeah, go. I, I'm tied between the two. I can't decide. I'm glad you at least took the step forward. Great answer, by the way. Thank you. For me, I would say it would be a tie between Benoit Blanc from Knives Out and Tony Stark from the MCU. Benoit Blanc has manners beyond that which I've normally seen in film. Um, I believe I made a remark on our review. I said he's the kind of guy I would give to my daughter to date. Um, But I I think a better metaphor for that is he's the kind of guy that my grandmother would probably take to the bingo. Um, He's just this old school, very polite, very um, inquisitive guy. I think we'd have some good conversations about truth. With Tony Stark, uh, I'll admit there's a bit of a superficial bent I have here. Um, aside from his genius IQ, which I could just, you know, 
I'm sure some of that would rub off on me if we just had nothing but each other. Um, <laughs> look at Nebula. You know, she was quarantined with him for about a month or so in Endgame. She definitely became a better person. Right. Yeah. They played uh, table football together. He taught her new skills like how to play the game, how to, you know, deal with losing or winning. But selfishly, depending on where we were quarantined, he could make me some sick tech that he could just, you know, give me because he's a billionaire. Not to mention all of his great properties that you could isolate in. You know, he's probably got some beautiful oceanside places that you guys could camp out for a couple weeks. Now, I will say with Tony Stark, um, I'd probably kill him after the first few weeks just because I think his arrogance would eventually tick me off. Uh, And I need to, you know, I need to find some way to knock him off and hide the body. So um, uh, so that'd be a fun game for me is just pretending to be his friend and then seeing when the right time is. Yeah, that's so sweet. You know, I'll be like, Tony, look at this view on your Malibu, you know, mansion up on this cliff. And he's like, oh, really? Walks over. He's like. Yeah, I guess, you know, wow, a sunset. Never seen that before. I'm like, oh, Tony, what's that on the <laughs> ground? And I'd shove him over the cliff. And That was very spot on Tony Stark. <laughs> Not the shoving part, but the his reaction to a sunset. Yeah. You know what? Never mind. He'd probably summon one of his suits to just save him. So Yeah, I was going to say that, why. but I don't want to kill your dreams. So In short, I think I'll just stick with Benoit Blanc and our really wholesome conversations and very insightful discussions and talks about books we've never read yeah he'd be a good friend i agree yes he would troy that's a that's a great question yeah thank you thank you all for your feedback all right so ladies and gentlemen the question that we have prepared for you and keep your eyes out uh this wednesday on instagram for this as well um you can make your recommendations there we are in search of taste makers and taste breakers Daniel and I tend to gravitate towards a certain style of movie, um, and call that whatever you will. It's uh, narrower than we want it to be. Um, There are a lot of genres that we have left out, and we are trying to expand our horizons a little bit here. So I'm talking genres like romance. Documentaries. Horror. Crime. Experimental films. Musicals. Sports movies. Inspirational films. Hallmark movies. And maybe even specific subgenres like Christian movies. Just throw them all our way. Like them or hate them, we want to review them. There's always something you can glean from a film. And Daniel and I want to uh, tap into some things that maybe you guys are more interested in. A lot of these genres I'm not mega familiar with. Anyway, feel free to drop us a movie recommendation that fits into some of these categories. Uh, We're trying to break the mold here, so thank you for your feedback as always. And now, it's time to go on to our spoiler review. Hello. 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 Spoilers. All right, get out. All of you kids that haven't seen Anomalisa, get out. Most of you haven't, I promise. All of you were slouching around watching J.J. Abrams' Force Awakens and the road ship, and you skipped out on Anomalisa. <laughs> but now, it's time to talk about, clearly, the better 2015 movie. James, you were talking a lot about this, uh, that I wanted to kind of flesh more out in this unrestrained section of the podcast. Okay. Where we can kind of break the chains a little bit. You were talking about the nature of animation, and you were talking about how this movie is so lifelike and so realistic. And I actually thought the question that dogged me for a, quite a bit was, 
Anomalisa is beautiful with its stop motion animation. Make no mistake. There were so many long takes of things. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, number one, that's good editing. And number two, that's such long animation. Uh It's crazy. But the point I'm trying to drive at is as the better educated among us, and I say that objectively, you have a degree in animation, but as a resident informant on animation and a practitioner of the art yourself why is it that you would defend Anomalisa as a great animated film if all of it could be easily replicated in live action using cameras in less than half the time and less than half the budget I I do want to say what's the threshold of animation how should I say okay animation would make this better or not if I were to film myself eating food out of the kitchen refrigerator and then I were to animate the same thing. At what point does animation become an important part to play? I think that animation becomes an important part to play whenever you start treading into surreal grounds. Now, I know that there are movies out there that are surreal and they're live action, and that's okay. But with a specific plot of Anomalisa, where this man, Michael Stone, sees every single person as the same person, with the same voice and the same face, it's like you're in a dollhouse. But every doll looks very real and talks very real. It triggers a certain part of you uh, that live action can't. Um, There's a certain distance that animation places. And this is direct carbon copy of something one of my animation professors told me a long time ago. And by a long time ago, I mean like five years ago. There's a certain distance between the viewer and the subject when animation comes into play. And that makes us more vulnerable and more susceptible to the message of animation and the film's message is easier to receive than it would be if it was live action. And I think a movie as monotonous as Anomalisa wouldn't have worked if it was live action because there is an appeal of, oh, look at all of these little tiny, like look at that little refrigerator and that little TV. They hand animated a scene recreation of an old black and white movie on the TV. That's amazing. Uh, to me. (laughs) Um, I thought it was great as well. Yeah, it was so spot on. Like, something about the frame rate in that specific portion. Anyway, does that answer your question? I think so. I think it gets at it. Uh, As you were talking, I was kind of thinking through, okay, animation as a primary surrealist form, perhaps not in the way we always think about it. And I realized, even when you break animation down into its more mainstream components, there's always something that's surrealist that helps. Animation, at the very least, helps the unusual and the usual gel well together. Yeah. So, for example, Up, you have an old man, balloons, causes house to fly. In live action, that would kind of be more unintentionally hilarious. But in animation... You've already animated all the mundane parts in animation. You've coated that with the same paint as you have the surreal aspects. I think a more obvious example is also Aladdin, the genie, and all of his different manifestations. In live action, if you were to do a frame-by-frame live action, I'm trying to separate the movie from the uh, quote-unquote live action remake that came out a few years back. Yeah. It would be nightmare fuel. Uh, seeing the genie take on all the different forms, his hands, you know, and mm-hmm. and his face is moving. It would be scary, but the animation helps keep its whimsy while at the same time inviting us into a more surreal atmosphere. So I think you're quite right. I think animation does have surreal properties at the very most. At the very least, it really helps 
the realistic and the fantastical gel well together and gives them a common space they can play in. Yeah, well said. Um, And I think the paradox of Anomalisa is this is such a visually interesting movie, but it is also so bland because that is the perspective of the main character. So it's so interesting how the bland is made interesting But at the same time, we are swept up in the mind of Michael Stone and the boringness and the blandness and even like the teeth grinding tedium of some of the conversations he has. In our previous episodes, we talked about villains that you love to hate. Uh, And I think we mentioned this uh, a few episodes ago with the question of uh, your top three sequels. And I kind of mentioned Jared Harris as Moriarty from A Game of Shadows. Oh, yeah. We kind of went on this tangent for a little bit on villains you love to hate. Michael Stone is a character I hate to love. Oh, crap. Go. Keep going. Don't stop. Because Michael Stone, everything Michael Stone does, I morally stand against. I mean, he completely has no regard for human life. He has no perception of individuality. He is a class A hypocrite because he stands on a stage in front of, we assume, thousands, maybe millions of fans. And he preaches on the exact same thing he lives against and doesn't believe in at all. His own wife and son are seen as nothing more than just objects, really. Their responsibilities, their hassles, they're not commitments, they're not relationships. And with this woman, with Lisa, that he falls in interest with. I will never say falls in love with because that wasn't love. You are correct. It wasn't. He only loves her because he thinks she's different. And then as soon in the morning when they wake up and they're eating breakfast together, as soon as he sees her flaws, not major ones, just small ones, he immediately starts despising her. And at the same conversation, before all that gains momentum, they're talking casually. He's like, well, I suppose I'll have to leave my wife and, you know, my my son behind. And she pauses. She's like, oh, oh, okay. That, that's so sweet of you. Like, I'm like, Lisa, <laughs> are you listening to what he's saying? And just the way he treats human beings and the way he treats himself. And I just, I'm genuinely worried for this man. Yeah. And yet, why do I hate to love him? What's making me love him in the first place? Like, I could easily hate him and just dispense of him. I, I don't want to say this, but there's... One iota of Michael Stone that I can deeply relate to amidst everything else about the fiber of his being I absolutely despise. Yeah. I'm suspecting my answer is going to be different from yours, James, and a little different from a lot of other people's. Yeah, let's do some Um, let's do some deep diving into our brains. I think a lot of people have the same general answer about Michael Stone, but in terms of how they apply it to their lives, I think it'll look a little bit different depending on who you ask. That's how abstract this movie is. That's why it's great because there's so many ways you can interpret things, which we should dive into after we spill our hearts out on the table. I was just going to say the way that this movie is framed, uh, the way that it's told with a potentially an unreliable narrator, depending on how you interpret the ending, there are a couple of different options for what this movie is actually. One option that ran through my mind, Michael Stone is a sick man. He, you know, on the airplane, he takes medicine. Um, He mentions Zoloft uh, at one point, which is an antidepressant, um, anti-anxiety pill. He's not well. And the people he hurts, there's no excuse for it. 
but he's not well. Uh, so this is a brilliant movie into the mind of a depressed or anxious or disassociating person. Another option is he's a sociopath, which I guess yeah. is another way of saying he's not well. But in this way, it's in an, it's a deliberate yeah. harm. There's deliberate harm going on. And the moment that I bumped this from a three out of five to a four out of five is whenever I realized, oh my gosh, was he just like imposing his image onto Lisa? And that, and he just wanted to feel something so bad that he convinced himself that she was like some, she was unique in some way. And that justified his affair, which is such a twisted, twisted thing. I don't know if this is more or less tame than what you just said. Yeah. But another possibility is, and again, there are so many possibilities with this movie. He could subconsciously see himself as the judge, jury, and executioner of people he cares about. If this movie was to imply anything on that note, I think it would imply Michael's really only in pursuit of perfection. I would say another possibility to add to yours, I thought for a while, is that he is a narcissist. Yeah. Um, which could be a symptom of his. But he sees himself as the one person in the entire world with a unique voice and face. The tragic thing is, based on his past lovers and stuff, I, I think it's safe to say there's always been more than one Lisa. There's always been a Lisa, someone he's run after. Um, and for how long he commits himself to them or whatever, then he discovers they're messed up. They've made mistakes or whatever. But he, whenever he confronts his, his ex... He asks if anything's changed. Right. So, like, there was a shift at some point, and this was before he was... This this woman he was with was before he was married and had a kid. That's what puzzles me, is where, like, what happened to him? Because obviously nothing in the world changed. At first, I was under the impression that the world was unique and, like, the world was different in this movie. And it was, like, him against the world. But in reality, it's just all in his brain, right? I was thinking about this the whole time. I was watching him kind of with Lisa in the bedroom. This is before they started making love. Yeah. It was so weird to me because with affairs and stuff, I'm against that kind of thing. Um, oh, yeah, me too. The way he goes about it is not as is typically portrayed in film, where the man is predatorily lusting after the woman and just wants to see her naked body. He genuinely just wants to absorb Lisa just the memory of her. He keeps asking her. He's like, talk to me in that voice of yours again. I love listening to it. We see more sensitive side of him. Yeah. I'm not saying that justifies him being in that context, but it doesn't make me hate him right away. It causes me to hesitate. You know, <laughs> um, again, he's a person I hate to love. <laughs> right. You know, with a movie this broad, where a lot of different meanings can be brought in from it, I think the risk inherently is it doesn't say a lot about one specific issue. It covers a, a wide spectrum of issues. And I would even venture to say it only says one thing, really, about humans. And that is there's something broken within us. There's something, I think there's something all of us have that hurts a little. And or a at lot. least when we see this movie. Yeah. That might be the only thing I think this movie touches on, but I think the implications it has the applications it has make it such an impactful one thing that it demonstrates so well. We never got to this earlier, but um, what was the one aspect of Michael Stone that you felt like you connected with? This is a very specific, very specific thing. So on the Enneagram, uh, to provide people with a base reference, I'm a type four. 
And type fours historically have had a hard time dealing with fitting in necessarily. We feel like we're different. We're unique. We're separate. And that's why when we find people we connect with really well, it's special to us. And I found for all the friend groups I've been in, for most of them, I've felt a lack of connection with the group as a whole. Maybe it has to do with the fact that some groups have a tendency to say, oh man, we're such a good fit. We're like a family. Oh, isn't what we have so special? They do a lot of talking. They don't do a lot of showing. Yeah. And I, I see things like that. And I think I would hesitate to say those things until I've seen it myself, until I've experienced that. Um, sometimes I found, and with other type fours, we've talked about this a little bit. I kind of go into what I call my existential mode. I could be surrounded by people talking, uh, maybe not, not at me necessarily, but just people talking around me. But then I'll feel just kind of separate from everyone. The way I describe it is physically what it looks like is I space out. But what I call it is it's like one minute you're in a fishbowl and in the next, you're suddenly outside looking at the aquarium, you know? Yeah. Kind of an outside looking in perspective. Like you're not no longer a part of the world, but you're seeing the world as a whole, as a bigger picture, the broad strokes. So that's the part I connected with with Michael. Uh, do I have it as bad as he does? Do I think all humans are the same and <laughs> I just use them to get what I want? Heck no. Okay. Um, in, in many respects, Michael Stone and I are nothing alike. But Good. there's that one thing. It's not even the one thing. It's like half of the one thing. Yeah. A third of the one thing. But it's one thing nonetheless that connects me to him. Yeah. So that's why I think I say he's a character I hate to love. Mm. Is there something perhaps that connected you with Michael Stone? Um, something that I'd never really thought about within myself until I'd seen this movie. How if I want to like someone, I may find myself filling in the cracks of what I know about them with me. I make a lot of assumptions. If we're going to talk about Enneagram, I'm a two. Uh, and I try desperately to anticipate other people's needs and read their minds. And sometimes the way that I do that is by, well, I don't know this part of a person, so I'm just going to assume that it's the same to me. Uh, and that's very egocentric. Pride is a vice of um, the two. Yeah, that's that's something that I had never really confronted in myself until I saw this movie and realized that is exactly what he's doing to this poor girl. He doesn't even know who she is. She doesn't even care about who she is. He's just going after the thing he wants. And I'm not saying that that's how I treat people. I'm saying that that is a part of the human psyche that I didn't know other people had or realized uh, they had, which is just another reason why this movie connects the viewer to the main character so well. You see how broken he is. Um, he's laid out in front of you. You see every corner of his dark mind. And because of that humanness, every human can, can relate to him. Mm. Once again, not something I'm going to watch ever again. But I think it's brilliant, and I think I would recommend it to someone who's willing to take the plunge. Mm. But you've all seen it already, so what am I saying? All right, guys. Well, I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. Make sure to rate, like, subscribe to wherever you're listening to our podcast and uh, please spread the word around. Not many people know about us and uh, we'd love if that were to change. Uh, so until then, we'll see you next episode with Lord of the Rings. Yeah.